Here in Matthew chapter 1, back in six or seven years ago, uh, we looked at this passage at Christmas time, and the, the main focus of that, uh, that time was to look at this passage in terms of the genealogy and the usefulness of genealogies. But as part of that, we looked at a subject that uh, we touched on a, a little bit at that time, that uh, this whole week I kept having it on my mind and I couldn't escape it. And I don't feel a compulsion that on Mother's Day we have to preach something related to mothers or on Father's Day that we have to uh, speak something directly uh, about fathers. But I did have this on my mind all week and, and kept going back to it. And so the subject that I want to talk about this morning uh, is the subject of the five mothers of Christ here in Matthew chapter 1. And I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 6 and verse 16. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Abinadad. And Abinadad the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Moab by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And then down in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, when we come to the genealogies in the Bible, there is a tendency that I would suggest that we have to just skip over them or to rush through them, to not give them much thought. Uh, uh, much less to give very serious uh, consideration and reflection to what genealogies may have to say to us or teach us. Are, the question is, are these parts of the Word of God important? Uh, are they to be hur hurried through or skipped? Uh, is it something that we can kind of uh, put up with until we come to the more important parts of God's Word? For example, here in Matthew 1, should we just jump down to uh, verse 18, uh, and where the gospel really begins and start uh, our paying our attention to the text there. If God has been pleased to speak these things to us in Scripture, then I suggest that we should be careful to consider what God is saying to us in these parts of his word as well. Uh, I would suggest that the gospel is here in these verses, in these verses of genealogy. And may God give us grace to see just a little of what is here 
uh, this morning. And on this Mother's Day morning, I want us to focus our attention on one particular thing that is very unusual about the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. There is something here that we do not find in other biblical genealogies or in other Jewish genealogies from ancient times. Genealogies typically mention only men. If you survey the many examples in Scripture, you'll see uh, that this is the case. So it is remarkable just on the surface to see five women listed uh, in these verses here in Matthew chapter 1. It is also true that ancient genealogies in family-oriented societies where your pedigree, where your credentials, uh, where your credibility constituted your resume, that is, your family, and who you were connected to, and who your ancestors were, uh, that was your resume, that was your credentials uh, in the ancient world. And so you included in a genealogy your prominent ancestors, and you left out the dodgy ones, the unimpressive ones, the troublemakers, the ones that had bad, bad reputations, you did not draw attention to those people if you were preparing a genealogy. So it is even more remarkable to note the personal stories of these five women, even at just a, a casual glance, we see Tamar associated with abuse and prostitution. Rahab forever referred to as the harlot. Ruth often accused of being forward in her approach to Boaz. Bathsheba remembered in connection with adultery and murder. And Mary, pregnant out of wedlock as a young teenage girl. In verses 3 through 5 in our text, we see these first four ancient mothers leading up to the birth of David. And then we see the fifth in verse 16 leading up to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and then Mary. And we need to be very much aware that Matthew could have written this genealogy without mentioning these women at all. Why are these women recorded here? Why are these particular women recorded here? Are these the women that we would have expected to have our attention drawn to from all the many generations of mothers leading up to the birth of Christ? Are these the four women that we would have chosen to select and to highlight? Why not Sarah or Rebecca or Leah? There are uh, many others that are passed over with no mention. And all of these ancient women are problematic women, women that we might try to hide rather than highlight if they were in our own family tree. Uh, do you have people in your family's past that just, you would just as soon forget about, that you would avoid bringing attention to? Maybe that you hope no one will mention or will ask you about when you, when you see them. You hope nobody will ask you about this person or that person in your family. We all have our Tamars, our Rahabs, our Ruths, our Bathshebas in our family. And yet here they are, brought in the most in-your-face way uh, to our attention by Matthew uh, in these verses. 
And so let us consider these and see if we can understand some of the reasons why these four ancient mothers of Christ are given for our consideration by Matthew and the Spirit of God who inspired these words and how they are significant to our understanding of Mary and the birth of Jesus and some lessons that we can draw from them. And so let's consider these, uh, these five mothers of Christ. First of all, Tamar. In verse 3 it says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now Matthew could have said, And Judah, the father of Perez, as he did with many others, which would have been the normal thing, but he doesn't say that because he wants to remind us of this story. Now, the story of Tamar is found in Genesis chapter 38. This is one of the most disappointing chapters in the whole Bible. Frankly, the conduct and morals and circumstances of this chapter are so bad that Matthew Henry says such an account is that, uh, such an account it is that one would wonder that of all Jacob's sons, our Lord should spring out of Judah. So he's asking the question, Judah and this family account is so bad, how in the world could it be that Judah would be the one from which tribe the Lord Jesus Christ would come? There's nothing good to be found in Genesis 38. Judah associates himself with pagan Canaanite friends. Judah marries a pagan wife. Judah fails to raise his sons righteously. Judah gives his sons to marry women of Canaan. One of those pagan women is this woman, Tamar. His two oldest sons are so evil that God takes their lives. Genesis 38, 7 says that Ur, that is E-R, that was the name of his son. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, and the Lord put him to death. And then as his second brother interacts with Tamar, we read in, in a few verses down in verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, these are the first two times in the Bible that it is specifically said about an individual person that the Lord killed him, or Yahweh took his life, or the Lord slew him, or as our ESV says, the Lord put him to death. That is how deep the evil of this story and these people are. As the story continues, Judah is unfaithful to his covenant obligations to Tamar. Tamar has been abandoned by the men of her life. The very ones that should have protected her and supported her have neglected her and abused her and failed her in every way. And then, Ta and then Tamar takes things into her own hands and she becomes pregnant with twin boys by Judah, her, her father-in-law. Something that was accomplished by a deception made possible by Judah's own immorality and weakness. In this chapter, we have false worship. We have deception, immorality, infidelity, and public scandal. Why would Matthew want to bring such a story to our attention? He could tell us anything that he wants to tell us, and he could certainly just have skipped over this dark chapter, but he does not. And here is Tamar, the first woman mentioned in the family line of Jesus. Consider Rahab. In verse 5 of our text, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now, what about Rahab? Rahab is a pagan Gentile woman. 
Rahab is not only a Gentile, but she's also an Amorite. The Amorites were not the only tribe that occupied the land of Canaan during the time of Joshua, but from all the tribes of Cana, God singled out the Amorites for particular condemnation because of their sin. God told Abraham in Genesis and met Moses in Deuteronomy that the land of Canaan would not be destroyed until the sin of the Amorites was complete and at its fullest. The Amorites were corrupt, vile people sacrificing their own children in their depraved, wicked religious practices. The book of Leviticus specifically condemns the indescribable immorality and perversions of Canaanite religion. This was Rahab's people in Rahab's world. To make things worse, Rahab was a prostitute. There have been uh, attempts uh, to excuse Rahab from the full implications of that word. Some have suggested that she had come to believe in Israel's God before the spies ever arrived at her home. They say that she reformed from her earlier life's occupation. The ancient historian Josephus claimed that Rahab was only a keeper of a house of entertainment for travelers. And despite these efforts to rehabilitate the image of Rahab, it is a fact that she is nevertheless identified throughout the Bible as a prostitute. She is forever referred to as Rahab the harlot. We see that in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25 being New Testament examples. The sad truth is that Rahab was probably involved in the sexual perversion of a thoroughly immoral paganism and all indications right down to the scarlet cord that we read about in Joshua 2 are indications that she was, in fact, an immoral woman. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is living in Jericho, an Amorite city devoted to complete destruction. This woman has a despised profession and is living among a cursed people. But here she is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about Ruth? Verse 5 in our text says, And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Consider Ruth the Moabitess. Unlike Rahab, Ruth is generally praised for her character and her virtue largely based on the dedication that she shows to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth 3.11 describes her as a worthy woman. However, Ruth was born and raised in paganism. The priests of Moab were, Moab were powerful and cruel, and they served an assortment of gods. The most feared god was Moloch. Moloch had his terrible place on a platform under which a great fires could be kindled. And Moloch's lap on this image was so constructed that little children could be placed on its red-hot surface and that they would then roll down an inclined plane uh, into his fiery belly. That was the god of the Moabites. Moab had other gods uh, that, uh, that led to the, uh, to the uh, gratification of lust with harlot priestesses in the temple. Moab was cursed by God, and consequently Ruth, being a Moabitess, was under that curse. 
Moab was cursed by God because they rejected the true and living God in favor of their idols. And Moab was in particular an enemy of Israel. They did everything they could to hurt and hinder and bring ruin to the people of God. The nation of Moab was actually formed when Lot had a child named Moab through his incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. The grossest kind of human relationship. Incest between a father and a daughter produced this people, Ruth's people. It was Balak, king of Moab, that hired Balaam the prophet to speak curses against Israel. Because of these things, we read these words in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. But here is Ruth, a cursed Moabite widow and a mother of the Christ. What about Bathsheba? Verse 6 in our text says that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Note that Bathsheba is referred to here as the wife of Uriah, not by her own name. Why is that? Well, I would suggest a couple of reasons. The first is, is that as the wife of a Hittite, she would have been placed, she would have no place in the congregation of the Lord. We are reminded of this exclusion by her identification as his wife. But secondly, by speaking of her in this way, we come face to face with all the evil that will happen to this man, Uriah. What, uh, what, the question about Bathsheba is this. Was she a seductress or was she a victim? There has been much debate about this in recent years, especially in recent years. But regardless of her complicity in this matter or not, she is forever marked by this great evil and the marriage that she enters uh, into with David begins in dark circumstances and under the dark providence of God. There are facts that are beyond debate. David commits adultery with her. Bathsheba is found to be pre- pregnant. David plots against Uriah, a man of great integrity, which magnifies all the more the evil of his deception and betrayal. David orchestrates the circumstances of Uriah's death on the battlefield. Murder, plain and simple. God afflicts the child born out of this sin. And on the seventh day, Bathsheba's child is dead. Adultery, conspiracy, murder, death. These are the things that have been attached to the name Bathsheba. This woman is remembered and recorded by Matthew, a mother of our Lord. Then we have Mary in verse 16. Of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. At first glance, we might think that Mary does not belong beside these other ancient mothers of Christ. But here is a connection that, but there's a connection that I believe that Matthew has in mind. He is making a defense of this unusual family situation, Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus. We must remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is being born in scandal. True, there is no sin. Mary has done nothing wrong. But to the onlooking world, here is a 13- or 14-year-old young woman who is pregnant and clearly pregnant before she is married. Everyone knows that she has conceived before she is married. How much 
uh, this much would be obvious to everyone that knows her. And so what conclusion do you think people are going to draw? And this is where I think Matthew is going in his narrative. And if we read verses 18 through 20, we see there that he accounts the situation and gives a fair assessment of what the circumstances there are. And so we see our Lord being uh, born into scandalous circumstances. And while Mary and, and Tamar or Mary and Rahab are very different people on a personal level, yet they look very much alike to someone looking in uh, from the outside. And yet God is bringing his purposes to pass. He brought David into this world through this family line, and now he brings David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, into the world in similar circumstances. And so here is Mary, here is Joseph and Mary, subject to criticism as those four ancient mothers of Christ were. And in the plan of God, he uses these strange marriages and conceptions and births for his own purposes despite all the dark circumstances and sin. And here is a defense of the birth of the Lord Jesus in these unusual circumstances. And a reminder to us that men are not bringing the Christ into the world, but this birth is God's doing from first to last, it is always, as it has always been the case, even from ancient times. It is a defense against attacks upon the genealogy of the Lord Jesus because everyone has acknowledged David as a great king, but look at those women who are in his family tree. And so we cannot attack the genealogy of Jesus without also attacking the genealogy of the one who has been recognized by all as a rightful king of Israel. And so, dear ones, I suggest to you that God can fulfill his purposes despite human sinfulness and weakness and obstacle, and that is exactly what we see him do in miraculous ways. Now, let me suggest to you a few lessons that we can learn from this passage. One is the, that, that God's tremendous faithfulness that he shows to these people. From the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God has promised his people that there will be a deliverer that will save his people. We see that in Genesis 3.15. But here in real life is Judah. He's not a Christian man, not a worshiper of Yahweh, but a wicked, a wicked unfaithful man. Has God's plan run into a roadblock? Have his purposes been stifled? Uh, where in this disgraceful situation do we see any hope of the Christ coming into the world through this man? But even these disgraceful circumstances cannot thwart God's purposes from marching forward unhindered and undisturbed. That is what Matthew is telling us. And so it will be with Jesus. Tamar, Hagar, Ruth, Bathsheba. In these names, we have messy stories. We have troubled lives. We have hard circumstances. And dear ones, we know that our sins cling to us. And when we are honest and sober-minded, we have to ask this question. How can the Lord fulfill His promises through my life? Have I sinned too much? Haven't I gone from the good and the righteous path too far? Haven't I messed things up to the point that they can never be made right? But what do we see here in, in, in the, from these five mothers 
of Christ. We see that God fulfills His Word even through messy lives, through sinners and the darkest sin. God has promised in Romans 8, 28, and we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things including our sin and failures and shortcomings and disappointments, all things working together for good. And Matthew is telling us exactly that and confirming to us this truth when he points out these mothers of Christ and their lives. Now, one thing that I would like to draw to your attention is how this makes a statement about Christ's humiliation. All of this is part of the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not born to what we would consider to be the best of families, not the most righteous of families, not the most noble or lofty ones, nor the best immediate circumstances are going to surround uh, the birth of Jesus Christ as he comes into the world. And we often think about his humble circumstances of his birth, his poverty, his rejection and his persecution, and finally the shame and disgrace of the cross. Uh, These are things that we often think about when we think about the humiliation of Christ. He comes from glory to be less than a man, Psalm 22, 6, but I am a worm and not a man. But his humiliation does not begin at his birth. Tamar, who dresses like a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law Judah. Rahab, uh, who is forever referred to as the harlot. Ruth, the cursed Moabitess. Bathsheba, connected always with horrible sin. Uh, There are many other black pages in this family story, and we don't have time to even begin to mention them them all. But this is a family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the family into which he is born. Does it have to be that way, that he is born from a harlot and an adulterer and from cursed people and from the many wicked kings? Why a family like this? What I would suggest to you that, that God was pleased to choose this family tree in this way, planned from all eternity, knowing full well who each one of them would be and what each one of them would do. Do you see how low the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to go to identify with his people who are sinners. It was out of love for sinners. Sinners like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And this is good news for anyone who has discovered that he or she is no better than Judah or Tamar. Anyone with a broken heart before the Lord. Anyone with a messy, sinful life. It tells us that the Lord Jesus does not shun sinners. It tells us that though we have reason to be ashamed, that the Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. That he is not ashamed to call Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary mother. Such are the depths of the humiliation of Christ. Humble to the dust that he might know sinners and save them. And note the width of the gospel in this genealogy. Who does this family include? It is not just the descendants of Abraham. It has never only been Hebrew people. It includes people who are outsiders, people who are unclean, people who are cursed people. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites, people devoted to utter destruction. Rahab is from Moab, a cursed people forbidden in any way to have any part of Yahweh and his religion. 
Bathsheba, a woman married to a Hittite, cut off from many aspects of Jewish religion and life. And there was room in the family of Christ for all nations. The promise to Abraham is that he, through his seed, the Lord Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And from the very beginning, from ancient times, we see this coming to pass by these that are included in his family and in his salvation. We remember at the beginning of his ministry in John 1.29, the statement is made, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew starts his gospel making reference to these, uh, drawing our attention to these, uh, these Gentile women that are in the family line of Jesus Christ. And then he ends his gospel with these words, Go therefore and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I think it's Paul Harvey. It's Paul Harvey that says the rest of the story. Am I right? Am I remembering correctly? Let me tell you the rest of the story. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story about these people. There was a disgraceful evil Judah. But this man repeat, repents of his treatment of Tamar in Genesis thirty-eight twenty-six, And it appears from this point in his life that he is a different man. This traitor of Joseph will pledge his life for the life of Benjamin in chapter 44. And when, and when the time comes for Jacob to bless his sons at the very end of his life, he declares that the Lion of Israel will be from the tribe of Judah. What about Tamar? Many believe that at the heart of her determination to have a child was from Judah's family was her belief in the covenant promises to the people of Yahweh and the Messiah to come. And then we have this incredible statement in Ruth chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. If you want to turn there, you, you can. I'm going to read these verses. But incredible statement in Ruth 4, verses 11 and 12. It says this. It, it, it's, the setting here is that all the people are blessing Boaz and Ruth on their wedding day. And they are going to say the most surprising thing. This is what the text says there in Ruth 4. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And then this is what they say. And may your house... Be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Consider the scene. All the people at the gate of the city who witnessed Boaz as he makes his public commitment to redeem Ruth, to be his wife, they pronounce a blessing on them. It is kind of like us having a wedding and having a wedding toast and blessing and, and, and making that kind of statement. Only more. It's more significant than that. And what is the blessing that they pronounce on Ruth and Boaz? Of all things in the world that they might have said, this is what they say. May Ruth and her future children be blessed like Tamar and, and her son Perez. Evidence that God blessed and prospered Tamar's life. And he used her to bless generations after her. And of course to bring the Lord Jesus Christ 
into the world. What about Rahab, the, the Canaanite harlot? We know it was, her, it was her faith in Israel's God that prompted her to help the spies that entered Jericho. And in case there was any doubt about the faith of this woman, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear in Hebrews chapter eleven thirty one, 31, where we read, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. The city of Jericho was about to be attacked. Within its walls there were people of all classes and stations of life, and they knew full well that if the city should be sacked and stormed, that they would all be put to death. And that, but there was not one of them who repented of sin or one who asked for mercy except for this woman who was a harlot. She and she alone was delivered. The only one among the multitude that is described in Hebrews 11.31 as, quote, those who were disobedient. It is the easiest thing in the world to believe when everyone else believes. But, it is diff- but the difficulty is to believe alone when no one else thinks as you think. To be the only one who believes. Now this was the faith of Rahab. She stood alone and our text in Hebrews 11.31 says, And by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish. The faith of Rahab, of Rahab was a sanctifying faith. For we see her no more as a harlot, but we see her as the wife of of one of the princes of Israel, the mother of Boaz, the great-great-grandmother of David the king, and most importantly, one of the mothers of Christ. What about Ruth? The story of Ruth is certainly one of great grace and kind providence from God. It would seem to be utterly impossible for this woman to come to know the true God and to have any place among God's people. But she is brought to one of the most astounding confessions of faith in all the scriptures. In Ruth 1.16, you know those words, For where you go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. If her faith has been tested by poverty and sorrow, the circumstances surrounding her connections with Naomi uh, are desperate times. Naomi says that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, and yet Ruth says, Thy God shall be my God. We know the rest of the story. Ruth does, in fact, go to Israel. She, there she is redeemed by Boaz. This most unlikely of all people, a Moabite woman and a widow, becomes one of the mothers of the Lord Jesus. And then there is Bathsheba. Please consider some things about this woman. It is interesting that the condemnation for all that has happened is directed at David. 2 Samuel eleven twenty 20 says, says that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And God judges David, and he takes the life of his child. And Bathsheba certainly suffers the consequences of David's sin along with him. But then something extraordinary happens in the life of this woman. 2 Samuel 14, verses 24 and 25 say, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, just imagine, if you can for a moment, put yourself in Bathsheba's place. How would you feel 
If a prophet from God came to you with a special revelation from God that he loved your child and that he would have a second name, Jedediah, which means beloved of Yahweh, can you just imagine what that must have been like uh, for this woman, Bathsheba? Does this sound to you like God is still withholding blessing from David and Bathsheba? It certainly sounds quite the opposite. This was a marriage that was, that was not supposed to happen. And yet God crowned it with his blessing. Chastisement and repentance is followed by a life restored and blessed. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I suggest that we see that in the life of Bathsheba. Bathsheba will prove to be an important she will prove to be an important person uh, in uh, an ally with Nathan uh, as Solomon is brought to be king in Israel. You may remember that there were many other sons that wanted to compete for and try to grasp the throne of David. And yet Bathsheba is instrumental in bringing Solomon uh, to the place of king. There's another uh, thing that, I, that needs to be pointed out about this woman. It says in 1 Chronicles 3, 5 that she had four children. Two of those children are Nathan and Solomon. That's 1 Chronicles 3, 5. Matthew tells us in verse 6 that David was the father of, of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In Luke chapter 3, we have a genealogy of Jesus that is different from Matthew's genealogy. Most believe that Luke traces the physical line of Christ through his mother Mary back through the generations. In Matthew's gospel, the, the, uh, the, the ancestry of the legal and appropriate kings of Israel are traced up to Joseph, the father uh, of Jesus. And so what we see in these, two, uh, in these two genealogies is this. Bathsheba is not only the mother of Joseph through Solomon, the legal line of Judah's kings, but she is also the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus, through the physical line of descendancy, through Nathan, her other son. And so Bathsheba is not just blessed, but she's wonderfully blessed by the grace of our God in bringing the Messiah into the world, the mother of both Joseph and Mary. One last thing. Do you love Proverbs 31? It is one of the precious and rich places of the Word of God. Verse 1 of Proverbs 31 says, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Many scholars believe that the name Lemuel is a nickname for Solomon. If so, then the words of this chapter come to us from the teaching and wisdom of this woman, Bathsheba. This is the woman who raised and taught and influenced the wisest man who ever lived. There had been a multitude of sermons about being a Proverbs 31 woman. And isn't it amazing that it was taught by this woman, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the mother of Solomon, the mother of Christ. How great uh, is the grace of God in this woman's life. Let me make a few observations and encouragements in closing uh, to our mothers on this Mother's Day. Have you ever been let down by the men in your life who should have protected you and nourished you 
and provided for you? Have you suffered abuse, physical or mental? Have you experienced famine and poverty and financial need? Have you been left to yourself to suddenly make your way in the world with no support? Have you been abandoned? Are you a widow? This is the story of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And I want to encourage you that God did not abandon these women in the most desperate situations imaginable. Faith and providence served these women well. From the most unlikely places and times and ways, God raised up these mothers, blessed them to be right at the center of bringing the wisest and greatest into this world, blessed them to be remembered forever. God used these women to change the world. Tamar, other women blessed with the words, may you be like Tamar. Rahab lifted up in the hall of faith to be studied and followed as an example. Ruth, a model of faithfulness and devotion. Bathsheba, the wise teacher of all Christian women. Mothers, if you face difficulties and hard circumstances, don't be discouraged. God will not abandon you. He will do you good. May God give you grace to believe Him and to trust in Him. And who knows what yet God may do, what the years ahead may hold, what your children may yet do, or, the ch or their children after them to build the kingdom of God and to change, uh, to even change this world. The five mothers of Christ call us all to believe. Do you have a messy and complicated life? The five mothers of Christ tell us that there is no one that God cannot save and use to do his work in this world. May God help us to believe that and to trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.